So good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew Light. I'm a senior fellow here at the World Resources Institute and also a professor at George Mason University. Um, I'm happy, indeed extremely honored today to be joined by my former colleague, colleague from the State Department, Rod Schoonover. Up until just about uh, two weeks ago, Rod was a senior analyst in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, um, also with a stint uh, as the Director of Environment and Natural Resources at the National Intelligence Council in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He uh, was widely recognized as the leading expert left in the government on climate change and national security. I have to say that personally, I slept a little bit easier knowing that my friend Rod was still uh, serving in the government and doing the job that he has been doing there quite well for over a decade. Um, prior to that, he was professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the California Polytechnic State University. Um, this morning, he published an op-ed in the New York Times titled, The White House Blocked My Report on Climate Change and National Security, Politics Included on Science and Intelligence. That's why I quit my job as an analyst for the State Department, which explains part of why we're having today's session. Um, so welcome, Rod. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Is this, can you hear me? Um, so when I, uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, thank you, WRI. Thank you to the uh, people online and in person who have showed up. I'm humbled that you all came out to hear Andrew today. <laughs> uh, and when you talk about uh, this person who used to work at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo uh, in probably the most beautiful part of the country, this person who quit to work for the government, quit that job to work for the government, that person sounds like a crazy person. So Okay, um, well, when I get to that in just a second, yeah. so, 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 but he's not. So, um, so uh, what, um, what we're going to do is I'm going to interview Rod here for about half an hour. And then we're going to open it up for questions from you here in the live audience. And for people online, you'll be able to send us your um, questions either through the WRI Climate Facebook or Twitter account using the hashtag WRI Climate. Um, we'll take as many as we can and have a good long discussion um, given uh, the topics here before us. So Rod and I worked very closely together, as I said, in the State Department um, in the three years that I was serving in the second term of the Obama administration in the run-up to the creation of the Paris Agreement. Spent a lot of time together. I feel like, Rod, I got to know you as a, as a person, as a friend, um, as well as a colleague. Um, we both have similar backgrounds in that both of us started out as academics, started out in university jobs, and then migrated for different reasons into government service. Um, unlike me, though, you actually gave up tenure, uh, and, and also a very beautiful part of the world to live in, as you just said. Um, when you left your job just about two weeks ago. So, so, so what are you doing now, Rod? So I understand there's a, a position opening at Director of National Intelligence. <laughs> uh, so, um, no, the, uh, so the sudden discontinuity in my career um, was not planned. And, um, you know, I didn't really have anything lined up. It was um, a leap into the unknown. I'm pretty sure I did the right thing by uh, quitting. Um, but leaving the government was excruciating. And uh, mostly because I loved um, civil service. I loved government service. I loved the intelligence community. Um, 
I loved working on issues in the intersection of national security and science. Um, and just elaborating on that, my, the work that I focused on uh, while I was in the intelligence community was what we may call environmental and ecological security. So not just climate change, but water security and food security, some wildlife trafficking, uh, emerging technologies. So a whole lot of issues, but climate change was always uh, paramount uh, in that suite of issues. Um, I bring that up because I worked alongside a lot of really amazing uh, civil servants and uh, intelligence community of officials and foreign service officers. Um, and these people work on behalf of the American people um, under difficult circumstances. And uh, they do their jobs exceedingly well. And um, they're patriots. And I, I, I miss them. And so I, I say that because, you know, the, this was a, re, a job I really loved. And um, it was very difficult to leave. Um, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, as Andrew said. Uh, um, I coincidentally uh, authored an um, op-ed. The coincidence, it landed today because I submitted it like seven days ago. So it just so happened to be today. It was not planned out with WRI. Um, and, you know, the whole thing is a bit surreal. But one of the nice things, one of the benefits, really, of leaving the government is I get a voice. I get my voice back. I can say, I can do what I'm doing right now and not um, necessarily have my language cleared by other officials. So uh, what I am saying is coming from Rod Schoonover. Um, and so I expect that, you know, I'm not quite certain what I'll do next, but I love science, I love national security, I love the intersection between the two. Um, and the ability to work on environmental and ecological, ecological security is something that I look forward to. But, but, but just to be clear though, there, there was no planned off-ramp here. It wasn't like you were looking, already looking forward to taking another yeah. job this summer. You'd, you know, nope. had enough after 10 more years. And so nope. this was really connected to the events that yeah. You know, we've, we've now come to know. So let's review that timeline for just, just a bit. So, so, so June 5th, House Select Intelligence Committee has a hearing on climate change and national security. You're one of the people who's invited to testify. Before that, you prepare written testimony. It's really prepared, really, by, by the Bureau, by INR, um, uh, the Intelligence Bureau in the State Department. Um, the, uh, the 11 pages or so is pulled together. It goes up the line for clearance to the White House. Um, and this is all part of the public record. The New York Times has now published uh, the uh, one, at least one draft of that testimony with comments on it um, that um, are from the National Security Council, among other parts of the executive office of the president. And then the word comes down that um, the testimony cannot be submitted to Congress. It will not be part of the official record of the hearing. As you put it in your op-ed at the 11th hour, you're allowed to testify 
orally. So you can give like five minute summary. Those of us who've done that before know it's very difficult. You take your longer written testimony, distill it down to five slowly read minutes and then answer questions on it. I don't know what all you can say about that. Um, I mean, it's very clear, obviously, that this administration's on the record on denying climate science, um, arguing that any kind of solution to climate change on the policy side will tank the economy necessarily. There's no alternative than that. They've been moving aggressively to roll back every single policy that they can from the previous administration, mitigation, adaptation. So what I want to know really is, is this an instance of suppression of science? Is that fundamentally what you think was going on here, was suppression of science for political reasons? Is this an isolated incident in your view? Um, uh, or is suppression of science becoming increasingly common by this administration? So let me jump back to the uh, first uh, pickup points. Uh, there's uh, a lot in that uh, question. Um, I just want to say it's, it's quite strange to be a sitting government official and the topic of news stories um, and the topic of requests from Congress um, and the topic of numerous Twitter uh, storms that uh, made my phone, I, I still don't know how to turn that thing off. It just goes off. Uh, the phone is in some other room because it would be going off now. Um, when I'm not uh, allowed or permitted to respond directly, it's a, it's a strange feeling. It's really weird for a sitting intelligence community official to be in the news, period. So when the Times and the Post covered the story on the 5th, you were still obviously in government, yeah. and, you're, and you're getting pinged That's right. immediately. Right. Uh, and you know, when I first agreed to do the testimony uh, to the House Intelligence Committee, I thought there was a chance that the story, that the substance of the story would maybe um, make a headline or two inside the environmental press. Uh, mostly because, you know, what the intelligence community has said and was going to say was not particularly uh, in line with what the White House um, uh, comments had been. And so that's sort of what I expected. I, um, I was amazed slashed horrified uh, that it was the suppression story that took hold. Uh, because, uh, so I, I say horror uh, cautiously because I think scientific integrity and analytic independence of the intelligence community are very important uh, issues. But more important are the serious challenges of climate change and climate-linked stresses to people and societies. And so, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write an op-ed was so that I could um, talk about that in a, in a controlled way without going into the, the political theater, uh, the, the palace intrigue, they, to feed the beast that the DC uh, uh, inside the Beltway um, community lives on. So, um, so my hope is that I become less of a story and, uh, and we return to the substantive issues of climate change 
national security because that's way more important than any in individual, including me. So, uh, yeah. so, so you asked if this was a suppression of science. I'll just say, um, yeah, I felt like it. Um, is it a pattern? Seems like it. So, how important is that with respect to our overall posture on national security? Like, can you say just more generally? Um, you know, one of the things you point out in your op-ed is that for some it might seem unusual that a guy who's a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a scientist at an academic institution mm -hmm. then migrates through the AAAS program, mm -hmm. right, to, to uh, working in an intelligence position. So what, what's the interaction there? So, so first of all, why the intelligence community works on climate change? It's... Uh, critical for the national for the intelligence community to understand the evolving threat uh, landscape presented to the United States and its allies, and of course that includes a changing environment. It includes a changing climate, and the intelligence community has been, uh, I think, one of the first testimonies publicly it had. Uh, on climate change was, uh, I think, 1998, or maybe even before. So this is not really new territory uh, for the intelligence community. Now, what's the role of science in the, uh, in the intelligence community? So, you know, arguably outside of boundary disputes and geopolitical tensions, a lot of the national security threats that arose in the 20th century and into this century have been an increasing, increasingly technical nature. And so you need scientists to help understand the threat landscape that's posed by nuclear materials, near-Earth uh, space objects, infectious diseases, emerging technologies, and climate change, of course. Um, and so... Um, the, the scientists inside the intelligence community are not there to generate science. That's, we don't run models, for example, in climate change. Uh, we're there, oh, I'm no longer there. Uh, they are there largely as interpreters of, uh, of, of the cutting edge, bleeding edge science. So, Questions from the White House, questions from the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury are increasingly of a technical nature. And it is smart to have scientists inside the intelligence community that can, uh, that can remain current in whatever scientific field uh, is, uh, is relative. And so you don't need a lot of scientists in the intelligence community, but you need some. So, right. so let's now then get into the testimony because I think this is where you take up a lot of these issues more specifically. Um, and I just want to do a little bit here of kind of common table setting for everyone. I mean, I mean, I I kind of think of, when I think of the the array of issues on climate change and clean energy policy and climate finance and everything else, 
that there is in the climate universe. Um, we obviously know that we're in a highly politicized environment in the United States on these issues now. It hasn't always been the case, but we are back there certainly and firmly again. Um, but the climate security conversation has been largely bipartisan, um, I think, over time. Over several administrations, certainly, you've seen something like consensus there between Republicans and Democrats. You mentioned this again in your op-ed today. Um, the, it's also the case that I think that we've always seen the, even the Department of Defense, right, sort of be kind of the, you know, in the early days of the Bush administration, we were pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol um, or, or refusing to re-engage on Kyoto. A clear messages coming from the Department of Defense there that, you know, we are going to take climate change seriously. We're not going to uh, indulge in any kind of denialist science or, or skeptical science or something like that, given the stakes here. And if you look at the literature on this, it's goes back away. So it's been 12 years now since yeah. the Center for Naval Analyses came out with their first major report from their military advisory board um, claiming that climate change was a threat multiplier on national security. We've got the increase over the last six, seven years of how attribution science, the ability to attribute particular events, particular uh, extreme events to climate change or isolate the degree to which climate change makes them more likely is on the rise. Landmark article occurred in, was published just a few years ago in the Proceedings of the National Academies on Syria um, from uh, Colin Kelly and colleagues about the degree to which the drought that precipitated the Syrian conflict, you know, was uh, much more likely because of human uh, climate change. Then you have uh, Dan Coates' statement before Congress just earlier this year with the worldwide threat assessment. Unequivocally, climate change is a threat to national security, identifying hotspots, Egypt, Jordan, other places where we have straightforward security concerns. Now, in your testimony, you pulled out three things that really jumped out at me, and I want to go through them um, in briefly, but just still to give you a chance to sort of say more, um, if you'd had the chance before Congress to do this. So one of the things is uh, on this, that I think contributes significantly to this discussion the document cites a number of non-weather-related stresses that don't get mentioned often when we're talking about climate and security, um, disruption of food webs, increases in species extinction and redistribution, biodiversity loss, I know, is another one of your big areas of concern. So how does that sort of add texture to the conversation? On yeah, so uh, that's a good set of questions. I, I do want to uh, just establish that although I was the drafter of the testimony, once it went through my bureau's clearance, it became right. the agency's Correct. document. So uh, I get a little uncomfortable claiming it as mine. So if we, or Andrew slips up, it really was the bureau's uh, uh, written testimony. But uh, as Andrew said, the, the topic of climate insecurity uh, has been um, pretty fruitful in its analyses of, say, military impacts. Um, the, the changing climatic conditions on basings and operations and infrastructure and preparedness. And to really understand those elements of climate and national security, it makes sense to talk about things like sea level rise and droughts and floods and extreme heat. Um, but when you uh, look at the other parts of 
climate change and national security. For example, patterns of political and social instability, um, violence, um, stress to, uh, to people. It makes a lot of sense to widen the aperture and look at what climate stressors are affecting people. And that may necessitate, again, broadening out from what I call a weather-centric uh, aperture. So, so increasing temperatures. Let's focus on that for just a, a second. Um, there are other really important climate variables like changes in acidity and uh, in water content in the, in the atmosphere. But let's just focus on temperature because it's important. And so temperature and increasing temperatures is not only about melting ice caps and hot days like today uh, or human suffering uh, because it's too hot. Temperature, there, there's a handful of control variables for the planet and everything that's on the planet. Uh, and temperature is one of those. So when you increase the temperature, you're not only making it hot to human beings, you're changing a lot of the biochemical, biophysical, biological, ecological systems in the biosphere. Uh, and so, and, and quite honestly, we don't understand that well enough. Um, so if you think of all the ways that human beings are impacted through fisheries, through agriculture, through changing patterns of disease-carrying organisms, um, changes in the ecological food system or food web, um, oceanic oxygen content. Uh, these are things that don't get as much uh, play when you talk um, or in the climate security literature. I think they're exceedingly important because of their deep interactions with humans and societies. So what can be affected? Food security, livelihoods, economics, either locally or, or national or subnational. Um, and so, uh, so I have a lot of interest in marrying one of the other planetary stresses that um, concerns me, and that's biodiversity loss, habitat loss uh, with climate change, and really understanding that nest of stressors uh, to, um, to people and societies. Because from a national security standpoint, uh, versus, say, uh, policies on combating climate change, from a national security perspective, it's the bundle of issues that is really important. It's, it's climate change. It's... Uh, environmental degradation on top of social and political conditions that already exist. That bundle, right, that's really the threat multiplier concept. Yeah. But it's an important one. On the other end of the spectrum, really interesting to me uh, the way in which your testimony also focuses on climate surprises. 
Um, so low probability, extreme events, high impact events, which let's face it is often kind of the, the target, right? For, uh, for, for some who oppose right, this, this, this kind of discussion or don't take it as seriously, calling it alarmist. And in fact, sometimes the word alarmist and alarmism kind of shows up a few places in the comments um, uh, uh, on that earlier draft of the testimony. So you say that, the, or, or I should say that, that your testimony says, or the document says that the national security implications of such changes could be severe. And we, in fact, it is prudent to prepare for them. So how is that defensible from a security standpoint? Yeah, so I think... You know, that testimony, which I'll just be candid, I haven't seen for uh, at least a month. So, um, but that testimony was a risk assessment. It was not a prediction of the future, right? If you're going to credibly assess risk, you need to consider low probability, high impact events. And so I'm... I'm actually very interested in the idea of climate surprise. Um, I think it's because my background is in complex systems physics, and it's a pretty well-known, uh, maybe troubling uh, thing, that a, a truism in complex systems, that when you drive them energetically, usually, thermodynamically, uh, they tend to destabilize. And so, so uh, especially if you do it for a long time. So over time, my argument is that you can expect climate surprise. You should expect to be surprised. Uh, hopefully, it will not be on a massive scale. Um, but just give me, let me give you an example of climate, what I call climate-linked surprises, because... Um, the funny thing about talking about surprise is that once you see it, it's really hard to characterize the nature of the surprise afterwards. So uh, let me give you an example. Um, and ecology and ecological systems have really great examples. Um, and I don't know how many people are familiar, familiar with the, uh, the seaweed problem in the Caribbean the sargassum issue. So if you're not aware of that, perfect. That's, that's why I'm bringing it up, because you have no idea what this is. Uh, no one did until 2011. Uh, sargassum is a well-known seaweed, benign uh, usually, in the Caribbean. Uh, Columbus saw it when he uh, came over on one of his uh, voyages to uh, the continent. Um, but a new explosive growth of sargassum has come uh, into the Caribbean. It is fueled by uh, fertilizer runoff from Brazil and warming ocean conditions. It's almost always a human part and a climate part that we have to worry about. Uh, and even just saying this, even just talking about the nature of this problem, I'm not doing it justice. You really should go and look at the sargassum problem uh, in the Caribbean because tons of seaweed is showing up on these beaches. Uh, 
daily. And so these, uh, you know, these small island nations in the Caribbean considered this to be uh, a national security threat, right? not just a nuisance. It's because of the impact on, on tourism, on economic vitality. Um, it uh, is strangling uh, the resources for a lot of these countries. And so, and I'm bringing it up not to talk about sargassum, I'm really bringing it up to illustrate the surprise element of it. Because if an intelligence analyst or anyone else was talking about, hey, we have this impending seaweed problem, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that didn't happen because no one knew about it. It came out of nowhere. Um, and so in a, in a different sense, in a much larger sense, you can imagine um, very rapid changes occurring uh, that have more dramatic um, uh, impacts. And so, uh, so I think that, um, yeah, that's okay. up there. Let's talk about, because you, I like the way you put that. This is that the, that the testimony is a risk analysis. And that's exactly how you characterize it, is that that is the point of the intelligence community, to assess risk and provide strategic warning. The, one of the most, I think, um, straightforward statements of that warning in the testimony, I'll just quote, is, absent extensive mitigation events, we see few pl plausible future scenarios where significant, possibly catastrophic harm does not arise from the compounded effects of climate change. Um, do you think that the United States is prepared for this threat? Um, what can we do about it? I mean, I want you to speak, for, obviously, from an intelligence community perspective. What are our biggest information gaps here that we need uh, in order to prepare for that kind of major risk? So uh, when I was drafting that testimony, I thought long and hard about using the word catastrophic, not knowing, of course, at that time, talking about surprise, not knowing that that would uh, be in headlines across uh, my Twitter feed. Um, and, but when I drafted it, uh, you know, you have to be careful about language like that. But in a risk assessment, uh, I think it, and if you're gonna be honest in a risk assessment and the intelligence community endeavors to speak objective truth to policymakers, uh, and on occasion to the American public, if uh, we have such an opportunity. Um, uh, I think you have to lay it out as a, as a possibility if there's no off-ramp, because the other important part of that sentence is uh, absent. Right, absent uh, mitigation. Mitigation, right. mitigating uh, factors or events. Um, so, you know, without that, I think it's actually should not be so controversial that some very unwelcome things uh, could happen. Uh, and so is the US prepared? Um, so so arguably, uh, no country is prepared for the full slate of climate-related risks, uh, to at least to fully handle them. Um, now, whether that constitutes a security risk is a different question. I have no, um, uh, I, I don't believe that, you know, multiple and compound climate stressors are um, 
a threat to political stability in the United States. Uh, our resources are too strong, um, certainly not in the near term. I couldn't say the same thing about other countries. Um, so, okay. Um, just one thing on this, and then I have one final yeah. question before opening it. But the, the, the comment from the White House is very interesting here on that particular sentence says, this last sentence uh, calibrates the testimony as not a science-based assessment, but advocacy for the climate arm, uh, climate alarm establishment. So is that is that who we are? Are we the climate alarm establishment? I don't know. I think climate alarm establishment should be the name of uh, of a band, <laughs> uh, and uh, and maybe I'll steal it. Okay. Uh, good. Well, I mean. I don't know how much. I, I try not to take those kinds of uh, comments personally. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would say that the tone. But if this is a view. Yeah. In in the exact again the executive office of the president. How's that? How do you feel about that? Uh, so what I would say, what uh, the, the the tone of that comment, I think, is a little unusual for our interagency. Uh, communications, um, but you know what's really important uh, to effective um, running of our government, effective uh, interagency uh, relationships, is scientific integrity, and in my case, analytic independence of the intelligence community, um, and so. Uh, you know, the, the scientific integrity as, as bolstered by the United States peerless federal science agencies. This is one of our greatest strengths as a nation. And anything that undercuts the integrity of those federal science agencies, uh, I think, um, is unwelcome and unfortunate. Okay. So... So we're the World Resources Institute, not the U.S. Resources Institute. So we're the World Resources Institute. So let's end this segment on international cooperation. Um, there has been some. There have been some measures. I think I would call them, you know, good, but probably not far enough yet. In terms of international cooperation, the G7 put together an initiative a number of years ago, commissioned a, a well-known report now called "A New Climate for Peace on Climate and Security." There was the G7 ministerial or foreign minister statement in 2015, which was very positive. Again, repeating some of the themes that you've already articulated here. Is this the high watermark so far? Have I been missing something? Is there a next obvious step, you think, in terms of greater international cooperation on climate and security? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I do think that that G7 work is highly important and uh, noteworthy, whether it's a high water mark, uh, arguably so. There's been other uh, meetings and conferences through the UN Security Council that I think are noteworthy. The, um, I always get this, uh, the name of this institute wrong, the Planetary Security Initiative, Initiative right. out of yeah. Hague, I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think they're trying to mobilize an international effort looking at climate insecurity. Um, but where does this go? I think, you know, just as climate science evolved over time, 
to encompass more parts of the Earth systems. Right? It started out as atmosphere and atmosphere and ocean. And then over time, land use, agriculture, biosphere interactions, freshwater. I think climate insecurity may go that direction. So climate insecurity, as we've been talking about, is actually a pretty large topic. Uh, I certainly can't cover every aspect of that when I was in the government fully, uh, adequately. It really requires a team of 30. Uh, but uh, so you may see little subcomponents. Uh, and you can see some uh, parts of that climate and agriculture, climate and fisheries, climate, as they relate to national security, climate and the militaries, et cetera. Okay. All right. So let's open it up for questions in the room. Um, again, if you have a question online, uh, uh, you can send it to us on Twitter or, or Facebook using the hashtag WRI climate. I'm going to repeat the qu questions briefly, not in their entirety, for our audience watching at home. So, got here, 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 and the back. Yeah, and then I'll get you over there. Uh, thank you, Randy Showstack, reporter with EOS at the American Geophysical Union. Uh, a couple related questions. First, um, you said that uh, what happened to you felt like suppression of science. And so I wonder, first of all, if you can elaborate on why it felt like suppression of science. And second, um, can you tell what is more specifically the threat or problem uh, that this proposes uh, for trying to uh, deal with and confront climate change from the by the federal government? So I'm not certain that I have looked up I'm not certain that I've looked the definition of suppression uh, for a while. And it's not a, a word that I use much in my life. Um, but the, uh, the testimony was blocked uh, because of its content of science. And... Um, that feels like suppression of science. I, I, I don't know how much further to go on that. Um, you know, there, one of the interesting things about this, um, this exchange is that the, you know, the government is fairly siloed. There's, you know, the State Department in this building and uh, the White House in this building and other parts of the intelligence community. So it's not like these are human-to-human -human interactions. They're all mediated by electronic mail. And so, you know, the, there's fewer actors that, you know, you can point to as, uh, you know, as uh, someone who, uh, you know, pushed these actions. Uh, that's why I said it felt like it, because uh, I can only speak to my end, if that makes sense. Um, and I would just go back to uh, your question about uh, what, what implications this has. There's a long history of the foundation of science in national security. Our national security rests on scientific integrity. It's, they are fundamental. And so um, I think, you know, personally, that... 
that when we weaken our foundational scientific base, we, wake, we weaken our nation. There was one, maybe, so you don't have to go back and forth. Was there one behind? Yeah, in the back there. And then I think they've got two in the middle. Caitlin McGuire on staff with Congressman Lipinski. I'm curious how our domestic conversation about climate security um, compares to conversations around the world. Do our adversaries, do our allies think about climate security differently than we do? Great. So a question on how do other countries look at this issue? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And in fact, uh, I think it's important to pay attention to how other countries rate climate change in their own national security framework. And not surprisingly, some countries who are really vulnerable rate this very high. Um, and you know, certainly countries uh, with good amount of vulnerability in Asia, in Africa, um, say that this is an important national security issue to them. I, would, I think I read in the open press uh, an article about a month ago that China has uh, begin, begun looking at uh, the impacts of climate change on their own domestic uh, stability. I think that's an important thing to watch. I don't know much more than I just said. Uh, but I think it's really interesting thing to pull on, right? Something to really look into. Now that I have a lot more time on my hands, you know, <laughs> maybe I can uh, pursue some of these other research questions. And just one last thing. Uh, I think it's really important to remember the high number of um, small island states where this, this isn't really even national security. This is beyond that. Existential security. It's, that's right, and uh, they they will they will tell American diplomats, uh, you know, straight up, this is a serious issue for us. Not just because of the sea level rise, which is also important, but also the dependence on fisheries and freshwater security, things like that. So uh, I, th I think that's uh, really important. Uh, those two, and then I'm going to come up here. Yeah. Hi, Cynthia Simon. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the relationship between sarcasm, sarcasm, and climate change, and um, how solid is the scientific evidence about the relationship there? Okay, sarcasm and climate change. Sarcasm and climate change. I I think you have a lot to say about this. Pardon me? Go ahead. Oh, so, uh, you know, this is something that uh, I started looking at two years ago uh, before. I, I, it was some random press article and that I was like, oh, this is what I've been talking about, uh, you know, behind closed doors and the underbelly of the U.S. government uh, about climate-linked surprise. And so I, I jumped on that. Uh, and so the, the, the relationship is... Uh, is compound. So there's the nutrients that uh, run off from, uh, I think, largely uh, agricultural runoff that gets to the ocean because of deforestation policy in Brazil. 
but I don't think it's only Brazil. Uh, and then uh, the warming waters in, uh, in the tropics between uh, you know, in the Northern Caribbean Sea and below. Uh, and I've heard, you know, so the answer to your question is the science is still being filled in, but it does, uh, a consensus is building around at least those two factors. Maybe, I think I read about dust from Africa maybe contributing and possibly changing ocean circulation patterns. Um, but a lot of that's, you know, really newish. Uh, but uh, I think the, the connection between the warm waters and, and uh, growth of sargassum is probably, it's pretty solid. So the next question, are the warming waters due to climate change? My bet is yes, but uh, we'll see. My name is Julio Cesar uh, Guiti, and looking at uh, all the uh, small states in the Caribbean that you just described, I'm just trying to uh, establish the relationship or correlation between climate change, national security, and immigration. Do you see the potential for us to have like a wave of uh, climate uh, refugees coming to the country? particularly if we look at what happened in Puerto Rico, uh, and it can happen into any of the other neighboring islands or countries. Okay, climate, climate refugees taken up in your uh, so, testimony. So this is one of the questions that we worked on a lot in the government, and it's climate change and its interaction with human migration. Um, you know, and I think sometimes it's difficult to mix that into a discussion of national security. Uh, and I'll come back to your question. Uh, because not all migration has a national security component. In many cases, it rela relieves social stress rather than lets it build up. Uh, but in terms of, um, in terms of numbers of displaced people, whether internally or between nations, um, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to anticipate larger numbers. I, I mean, uh, the, the logic is, follows that as more climate-linked hazards present themselves, um, we don't seem to be doing a very good job globally in reducing our vulnerability to climate hazards. And so it, it seems to, to follow um, that migration and, and, uh, and what migration, how it affects uh, newly uh, host countries is also uh, an issue worth considering. Um, this is one of the issues that I wish had a lot better science behind it, a lot better social science. I find a lot of it to be speculative, just as I did right in front of you, right? Uh, and so, um, but it's a, it's a pressing question. It's, a, it's, an, uh, it's an important question, so. Okay. Can we get those back there, Amy? 
excuse me. Sorry, Tim Pucco, uh, Wall Street Journal. If I could just return to the first question a little bit. Um, we've heard from the White House, they've, they've tried to frame this as a personal issue that, that you and others are sometimes like these deep state actors who are just out there to undermine the president. And it can be very difficult out there to explain right now that, well, some things are not an, an argument over policy or politics, that there are more, I guess, more important, or, or, or there's a distinction between that and disputes over the facts, which is how you perceive this. So if you could, I would love it if you could like explain a little bit more or detail a little bit more what led you and, and other colleagues that you work with to believe that there was a pattern here and that it was something that was more insidious, you know, a, a suppression of, of, of science and a dispute over facts rather than just a policy disagreement? So uh, that's a hard question. Uh, can I pass? Okay. Um, you can. No, I'm going to take it. Um, so I don't see this as a political argument. Um, well, to the point that, um, so my view is that, um, you know, as a scientist and as someone who has um, read 25 years of climate science literature, spoken to lots of climate scientists over a long period of time. I think, uh, I don't think it's correct to call this a policy dispute. I, I think there's, um, there's, there's what the science says, there's, there's what mainstream science says. Uh, and, and then there's uh, what mainstream science doesn't say. And one of, the, one of my pet peeves is when scientists put themselves above science. Um, and I think it's important, you know, even though I'm a scientist and I've read lots of uh, journal articles. The reason why I think that um, my take is more likely to be correct is because of the thousands of scientists and scientific institutions worldwide and the countless number of scientific articles, peer-reviewed articles and assessments published uh, annually. Uh, that's the foundation that I'm, uh, you know, I'm operating under. I'm not operating under my own deep scientific understanding, because uh, I would argue, uh, you know, there are pieces of it that I really understand. Other pieces that um, I think are um, less foundational. But what I think is important is that I look to the body of science and uh, the, um, some of the suggestions that we received, I had never seen in a mainstream climate article over 25 years. So, so just like one quick follow-up. One of the comments you know, that was published in the Times 
from someone in the White House, potentially a scientist, was consensus of peer-reviewed literature has nothing to do with truth. Is that a scientist, an example of scientists, if that is a scientist, someone putting themselves above the science? I, you know, it's a really interesting philosophical question. It, it's, a, it's an unusual question to, uh, to run across uh, in a scientific venue. Um, I had never heard that argument before. Um, and so, um, and, and, I di and I disagree with it. I, I think at some point, again, I don't mean to use the word thousands over and over again, but you know, if you're in the intelligence community, uh, which, where are you going to go uh, when you think about climate change and climate science? Would you go to uh, the peer-reviewed journal articles? Would you go to the scientific assessments of our own federal agencies? Or this other uh, body of experts whose opinions and statements have not uh, survived the scientific peer review process. All right, so. Hi there. Um, Neela Banerjee with Inside Climate News. I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously your departure has turned out to be quite high profile, but I wanted to f ask whether there's any kind of um, quiet exodus occurring, the State Department and other intelligence uh, bodies um, of specialists like you, folks who know about the nexus of climate science and um, national security interests, and um, and I guess part of it, I'll just stop there. Yeah. So how big is the exodus? Um, it's a hard question to answer, not because the answer isn't direct. Uh, it's because when you start talking about in, in intelligence community staffing, it starts to dance around classified information. Um, but I will say this. Uh, there are, I am not the first. Um, there have been others who have uh, either moved accounts or have, um, uh, you know, I, I can't remember how many have left the government. Um, that's not a number I keep in my head, but um, it's non-zero. So there's a related question from Carolyn Beeler from Public Radio International's program, The World, um, sent to us over Facebook. Um, what, if any, impact do you think suppression of climate science is having inside the State Department? Is there, and I think, so let's just take her question straightforward. What, is there an impact that's having inside the State Department with respect to you know, the mission of the State Department, with respect to our national security and readiness? Um, and I think you can answer that, I think, in terms of the direct question, suppression of science. Mm -hmm. Is there a broader phenomenon that you can speak to here that might be affecting the mission? You know, uh, these questions are so negative. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so what I have watched over 
18 months. Is that right? That can't be right. Two and a half years um, in this administration have been really talented civil servants who are, as I said before, operating under difficult, difficult conditions, who may not even agree with the policy that is being uh, pushed, um, but nonetheless try their best to execute that policy, and at the same time try to eke out as many wins for the American people at the same time. And so, you know, I'm just amazed by this threading of the needle. Um, and so, uh, so I would say that, you know, attacking or suppressing or undermining or muting uh, climate science does not help that situation. Right? It makes an already difficult situation more difficult. Um, and so, um, so yeah. Jessica Brand, New Climate Economy. Um, historically, there's been a, a sort of reluctance from many climate scientists to attribute particular extreme weather events to climate change. And then in more recent years, that sort of uh, ability to do that and willingness to do that seems to have increased. I was wondering if you could expand a bit on any sort of comparisons or differences that you see to the intelligence community and their ability to do that in hotspots and war zones. Right. So Thank you. Attribution in science. At, yeah. uh, at Migrating that to intelligence. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we, we watch that science pretty closely. One of the things that we don't do is we don't lead past the scientific community, right? So we don't, we, we use uh, what the scientific community is establishing and um, developing. Uh, and, and we don't go past that. But, but what I'll say uh, on, on that particular field of science, which I think is rather interesting, um, I, I would like to see more work on that uh, before I would personally say uh, this, this, and this. With the caveat um, that and this is an analogy that I stole from someone, and I don't remember who, but it may have been even someone in this audience or online. So my apologies. So attributing a weather, an extreme weather event to climate change is the same as attributing whether a certain home run is uh, due to a certain athlete's performance-enhancing drug. I, I believe the analogy was originally about Barry Bonds. Yeah. So, so, well, so. <laughs> yeah, but so, for example, a person walks in who's on, uh, on performance-enhancing drugs, hits a home run. Was that due to uh, the drug? You know, it, it, at some point, because climate is the uh, integral of weather, at some point, that question breaks down. Right, and so that's why I like that analogy. You know, when you say, "Well, this is 15% due to climate change," you know, it's a strange 
uh, thing to talk about. All weather is affected by climate change, right? When you really think about it. And so, but, I, but what I do like about the attribution science is that they put it into a language like this particular heat wave was 10 times more likely right. compared to the historical record. I think that is a very helpful metric. Great. And I'd like to see a lot more uh, science on that. One more at the back, sorry. Hi, thanks. Zach Coleman with Politico. Uh, you know, I wanted to jump off of what Tim asked a few questions ago. Uh, kind of, you know, there's always been this this threading of the needle between scientific recommendations and policy when it comes to an administration. You know, if it was if an administration was run by scientists, we'd have a kind of different society than we have. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, in situations like the State Department, where there is a policy such as promoting the adoption of fossil fuels right now, how did you or how do you bring that science to bear in a policy discussion? And to you, when you can see kind of the push and pull of that policy and its effect on the climate, where do you put your foot down? Like, like what did you say in those situations if you were asked to weigh in on the climate and national security effects of that type of policy, which exporting fossil fuels, you know, technology for, for power, things like that. Okay, energy policy and... Yeah, so, um, so the, the actual answer, I didn't participate in those types of discussions, mostly because we had energy uh, experts who would, that's more in their world than mine. Uh, early on in uh, my work in the intelligence community, I, you know, again, this is such a large space. Uh, already doing water security analysis, food security analysis, add on wildlife crime and looking at ivory and, and, uh, and rhino horn. And on occasion, space security issues. And so uh, I opted to not participate in the, uh, in the energy discussion, although I think it's extremely important to climate change, obviously. Um, so I never found myself wading into those waters. Um, you know, my, my, um, you know, my world was really about climate change impacts. And, and if you're talking about the implications of climate change on national security, that's when you go into the climate science. And, uh, you know, that was uh, the issue at hand. Okay. Well, with that, I want to thank Rod for spending part of this okay. afternoon with us and all of you, yes, for, for coming and watching online. Um, we are going to archive this video um, so that it will be available for, for later viewing. Um, and Rod, I just want to thank you personally uh, for all of the work that you did in your service in government um, and for helping to maintain and socialize the importance of this issue across the portfolio of incredibly important security issues that we face today. And I believe that, that the impact of that work is going to be long lasting. So thank you very much. We look forward to seeing more. Thank of you. you. Bye -bye. Thank you.